if I was a centaur, I would also build my nation on the on the grassy steps. It does does seem like a uh, a place to really spread your legs, you know, <laughs> stretch your legs. That that makes more sense. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> horses have fun too. Just just gonna, just gonna leave that one out there. Huh? <laughs> Live from the Mundangerous Ley Lines in New York City, I'm your host Shane. And I'm your host Ishan. And welcome to episode 270 of Total Party Thrill, a podcast for game masters and players where we discuss our campaigns in order to inspire yours. In this episode, we're continuing our series on campaign settings and talking about playing in the world of Midgard by Coldplay Press. But first the party goes to jail in the Gates of Morning campaign. And later, Torbjorn has big plans for you in the Character Creation Forge. Total Party Thrill is also brought to you this week, completely coincidentally, by Cobalt Press. It's true. I don't think anyone will believe us, but it's true. <laughs> no, they're they are here sponsoring us because of the Scarlet Citadel, a 5th edition Dungeon of Secrets, now on Kickstarter. Scarlet Citadel is a classic multi-level dungeon for 5e D&D, a place of dungeon crawling, treasure looting, and morphing battle maps. And the project will create six main items, a hardcore cover book with both regular and limited editions. A hand-tooled leather edition, a map folio of poster-sized table-ready battle maps to play on, and a fully optimized PDF. And of course, there will be a digital edition for the Roll20 Virtual Tabletop and a Fantasy Grounds edition for that platform. If you've been following the Cobalt Press stuff, you know that the Kickstarter is sort of the main way that they uh, fund all the new projects, which means that previous projects have done quite well. Uh, and here we are with uh, with a new one. Um, I'm always excited for for these things because they build out on you know sort of the the extant campaign settings and uh, the uh, previous information that Cobalt Press releases for m- multiple game systems. Yeah, the other thing I really like about these projects is that they they uh, Cobalt always gets a wide variety of writers and participants and contributors to these projects. So it's a great place for uh, new people in the industry to get their start or people who found a little bit of success independently to to maybe start working on, uh, you know, a- approaching day job levels of work. Um, so so Cobalt Press is kind of an important stepping stone in that regard. So if you like what they do or you're excited about this particular project, the Scarlet Citadel, uh, it's great to support them on Kickstarter. We would have said this even if we hadn't gotten paid. <laughs> right. <laughs> uh, you can check that out at kickstarter.com. Uh, search for the Scarlet Citadel. All right, Ishan, where are we in the Gates of Morning campaign? The Gates of Morning campaign is our 5th edition D&D game set in Eberron, a sequel of sorts to the original Morning Glory campaign. And in southern Karnath, on the edge of the Mornland, the party is chasing a killer. Yeah, the party is deep in the heart of an arcane facility that uses water from the Mornland to create terrifying undead amalgams. <laughs> right, less on the edge of the Mornland and now inside the actual Mornland. Yeah, we took a portal through the dead gray mist and now here we are in the Mornland. So, since magical and natural healing don't work and you just finished a big fight, the party figures out that they can actually rest inside the extra-dimensional space created by a rope trick. They do that, they patch themselves up, and then prepare to purge the rest of this entire facility of all the undead and the acolytes. But first, uh, <laughs> still being D&D characters, <laughs> we examine our loot. <laughs> all right, so Paul had uh, a few things on her. 
The amulet she was wearing is a periapt of wound closure, which Switch claims for herself because she's always in the scrum and always getting knocked out, apparently. <laughs> Bramble takes Paul's quarry beach wand, which amplifies the psychic effects of his spells, and San takes a pearl of power, basically for an extra smite per combat. <laughs> Uh, Paul also carried a medallion of thoughts, which uh, got placed safely in Warden's pack, not to be attuned to at all. <laughs> then they get ready and open the iris that blocks the sparking portal across the dead gray mists. They step through and feel a sense of relief in their stomachs as they step back into the hallway and out of the Mornland. So checking the uh, map that the dead acolyte kind of sketched together for them, party heads to the prison a narrow hallway lined on one side with cells and along the other wall are shelves uh, all empty but for a glass sphere about a foot and a half of cross uh, filled with a bright red liquid can't imagine what that might be hmm well switch takes a close look and realizes it's blood just about the right amount of blood to fill an adult human-sized body uh, we know this is true because uh switch's player susie is uh, an actual what phlebotomist she's she's a doctor who works with hematologist blood. yeah <laughs> yeah so uh there was a moment of arguing over whether or not the, what the size of this vessel was i, I think did it got the upgraded math. slightly <laughs> <laughs> so the noise they're making while they're investigating alerts the only prisoner in this jail a Karn a carnathy farmer named yurik who well seems out of his mind because he's babbling a crazy conspiracy theory about it turn, how it turns out that all halflings are actually human children. I don't know where he got that idea. I mean, it's because the only halfling he's ever met turned out to be a human child. <laughs> <laughs> don't worry, though. Yurik is happy at the thought of being rescued. And the party considers setting an ambush for the other acolytes who will inevitably return to feed him. Warden takes a few moments to meditate and communes with nature, reaching out with his senses uh, within 300 feet, and discovers that there actually is a single powerful undead in the location marked Goo Pools on their map. So being the upstanding do-gooders that, that we are, the group cloaks themselves in a zone of silence and carefully approaches the Goo Pools. Inside, there are two halfling acolytes tending to several pools, stirring the noxious matter that's floating in the water with long poles. One of the pools is bubbling. So Vesicod and Bramble coordinate their spells and freeze both acolytes in place with magic at the same time. Warden rings the bubbling pool with a wall of fire to keep whatever it is inside and the rest of the party quickly rushes into the room and stabs the paralyzed enemies and puts them down almost immediately. But emerging like a snake from the central pool, a tentacle grabs one of the corpses and pulls it in beneath the surface. The pool begins to simmer rapidly and a ball of rotting flesh rises out of the water, supporting itself on a mass of writhing tentacles beneath one huge dead eye. And we'll find out what happens next, next week. So this week, we are uh, what, maybe three years behind, <laughs> <laughs> finally talking about the Midgard campaign setting from Cobalt Press. So shout out to Sebastian, uh, one of our listeners, who sent us a copy to review, asked us to review it, and so here we are. 
Uh, just a reminder that these episodes are to give you a brief overview of a campaign setting that you may not have heard of or that you may not have played before. So as a party, you can all decide if you want to do a campaign or, or one shot or a story in that campaign setting. So give me the elevator pitch for Midgard, Ishan. So Midgard is the primary campaign setting created and supported by Kobold Press. Unlike fantasy pastiche settings like the Forgotten Realms, though, Midgard is intentionally grounded in the real world. Uh, you might think, oh, Midgard, it's a it's a Viking setting, but it is not. Oh. Right. I was also very confused. <laughs> <laughs> that explains the first 10 minutes of reading that I did. <laughs> <laughs> Instead, it relies on the folklore of Eastern Europe and Germany as its touchstones. And that means the tone varies from, you know, kind of gritty uh, to quite dark in like a Brothers Grimm fantasy kind of way. And it is also, importantly, system agnostic, uh, though it's, you know, kind of a a fantasy d20 type system so it's meant to be used with all versions of D&D, pathfinder 13 age games of that vein and for that reason the midgard world book uh, which contains the baseline setting lore has very little mechanical content uh, there are other books that include specific rules for specific game systems and then just a ton of splat books so in terms of history midgard is designed by cobalt press founder wolfgang bauer Jeff Grubb, and Brandon Hodge. If some of those names sound familiar to you, that's because you play RPGs. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so uh, notably Wolfgang used to be the editor of Dragon and Dungeon Adventures and has worked on everything from Planescape to Birthright. Uh, and he also uh, has the writing credit on one of our favorite 3.5 books, Frostburn. And then Jeff, you know, co-created Dragonlance and Forgotten Realms, so... Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> So Midgard began as a homebrew setting. Um, bits and pieces of it would show up in different articles during 3rd edition D&D. But the first comprehensive setting guide came out from Cobalt Press in 2012, which I think was right about the time the company rebranded itself to call itself Cobalt Press. So it's like basically one of the like very first products they put out as a company. Right. Uh, it had rules for Pathfinder and Green Ronin's Adventure Game Engine. And then in 2018, we got the Midgard 5th edition guide, and there are dozens of splat books and supplements for 5e and Pathfinder and other systems now. So like we said earlier, most Cobalt Press projects are funded by Kickstarters now. Uh, certainly you've heard of some of them, and there are current ongoing ones uh, for Midgard. Uh, and of course, they are actually in stock, uh, both in retailers <laughs> and on the Cobalt Press website. So uh, this is not the kind of thing where if you miss the Kickstarter, you've missed the opportunity to play the game. Um, you know, PDFs are available. The books are still available. Right. Uh, nor this is, is an, nor is an this, active setting. <laughs> nor is this Miss Dara, where we're like, hey, you like this cool setting? Tough. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> this is where we bait and switch. <laughs> All right. So uh, let's go through a honestly brief overview of the setting because Midgard is a massive, uh, complicated, very detailed world. I mean, you know, it's been worked on for years and years and there are multiple books. There's Midgard, there's a, a Southlands campaign setting book. Um, you can go very into the weeds here. So this is basically just like pretty top level. It's not a Viking setting, but there are Vikings. They live in the frozen North, just like, you know, Vikings in the real world. Yeah, this <laughs> setting is is very like proudly and notably fantasy Europe, uh, but like 
continental fantasy Europe, right? There's no Britain to be the uh, the noble heroes. It's it's where France and Spain uh, would be. There's a blighted wasteland from a Cthulhu esque magical catastrophe. Uh, you Just know, like so the real more... world, <laughs> right? <laughs> Um, and then instead of being a round world, uh, Midgard is flat, and the edge of the map is encircled by the world serpent. Yeah, the sun goes around both sides, so there's the, the Midgard side, and then the other side is uh, basically where all the elves live and come from. So, there was an ancient war between the gods, and eventually a truce was brokered by Wotan, which is the setting's version of Odin, who is... Pretty much exactly Odin from Norse mythology, um, taken wholesale. Just the name changed. Uh, in fact, most of the gods in Midgard, and, and this is something that kind of sets it apart from a lot of other campaign settings, the gods are basically exactly the same gods that you might find in the real world. You have Thor, there's Bast, there's Perun, who I had, to, I had to look up and turns out it's a Slavic god of the sky. There's Horus, there's Baal. Baal is a dragon, though. <laughs> <laughs> You'll recognize the names, if not necessarily the form. Right. Uh, so as part of this truce that was brokered, the gods wear masks, uh, which uh, conceals their true identity and protects them from usurpers and from each other. Now, in game terms, this means that any god that a character is worshipping could actually be a different god in disguise. Uh, or, or maybe like worshippers or temples in one part of the world actually share a faith with those in another part of the world, even if the trappings of like the sun god that one person happens to worship is very different from the trappings of the sun god that someone else worships. Probably they are the same entity that is still, you know, uh, gathering energy and, and worship from these people. Then the world itself, uh, <laughs> as you might expect from a world wrapped by a serpent, is teeming with magic. Uh, ley lines wind across the landscape, allowing spellcasters to draw power and create great magics. Yeah, the ley lines also act as roads that move through the Fey Realm, which lets those who know how to traverse great distances very quickly, uh, assuming that they're not waylaid by other people on uh, the leyline road or the creatures or magical powers that have claimed that leyline for themselves. One of the cool things about the map is that you don't notice it at first because it's very subtle, but once you read about the ley lines, you look back at the world map and go, oh, those like light, spiraling, meandering tracks that look like you know you you put a snail or a worm on the map and just let it do whatever it wanted to do are the ley lines and you look at it and it's like oh okay in this world civilizations were built along ley lines because you had access to magic as opposed to rivers in the real world right so let's talk about uh the various regions of midgard so most first timers to midgard are probably going to start their game in the free city of zobek it's kind of in the style of like a Bavarian city-state or maybe Vienna, depending on like, you know, exactly what kind of um, cultural touchstone or like level of technology you want in your game. It's, you know, it's the water deep or the Sharn of the setting. Um, it's the place that has the most information about it. You could run an entire campaign in Zobek and the surrounding areas if you wanted. So Zobek is in the crossroads region in the middle of the continent, uh, which is you know full of travelers and trade. Uh, it's based on Slavic society. The gods sort of reflect this. 
Yeah, like you look at the Northlands, you're like, oh, there's Thor and Loki and Wotan, okay. And you look at Southlands, and you're like, oh, there's Horus and and Ra's dead, and there's Bastet. I I get all this stuff. And then you look at the crossroads, and I was like, I don't know who Perrin is. I don't know who Rava is. And then I looked him up. I was like, oh, they're real Slavic gods. That makes perfect sense. They just haven't gotten top building. Yeah, there's, there's <laughs> going to be a Baba Yaga there, right? <laughs> oh, oh, there's a Baba Yaga. <laughs> <laughs> So the Free City of Zobek was born out of revolution against the ruling class less than 100 years ago. And you get all the stuff that you normally get with that kind of city-state. It's ruled by a city council. But there is a pretty heavy steampunk aesthetic to it. So it's a lot more modern than your typical fantasy setting. It's more akin to an Eberron city. Yeah, this is where you're going to meet your gear forged, which are constructs that contain the soul of a former humanoid. If these sound a lot like Warforged, I don't think that's uh, unintentional. Right. Uh, one major difference is they used to be alive, right? They used to be some other race. And then there's a, a magical ritual that takes your soul and sticks it inside the gear forged. And so now you are a a literal clockwork person, right? A Warforged is like magically animated stone and, and metal and wood. This is actually like you have gears and you have to like wind yourself up and you got to make sure you oil yourself. It's very Tin Woodsman. It's a it's a 40k Dreadnought. <laughs> Except less pain. <laughs> okay, well then it's a it's a 40k Eldar Dreadnought. Okay. <laughs> it's a, of a Wraith whatever bone wraith guard <laughs> did you wind it up i don't know i sang to it for an hour and a half is <laughs> exactly. that how it works <laughs> uh of course uh there are mercenary companies political intrigue a monstrous underclass and rival nations all ripe for interesting gameplay and, and challenging scenarios so in the crossroads nearby zobek uh, there are plenty of places that are going to influence your game and that your characters might get involved with nearby there are the dwarves of the iron crags they have kind of like an artificerish society they you know build things they they're like the main gunsmiths um they're they're switzerland they're the swiss dwarves <laughs> great <laughs> uh however one thing to point out here is that one of their sort of like cultural conceits is that the dwarves make slaves of all prisoners of war and then end up releasing them 10 years later and like this is something that you should consider before you play in midgard is that there's a lot of slavery in the setting and the way that the dwarves practice it it's more like temporary indentured servitude and you know you can't like kill your thrall is what they're called but there are a lot of other places in the setting where it's just straight up like regular transatlantic type slavery and chattel slavery yeah exactly and there, there are a lot of potential problems there um i mean it's kind of on the box it is it is very specifically a dark realistic setting then nearby we have the uh matriarchal pernalia which is ruled by a demigoddess uh as well as the human kingdom of magdar and then the Margrave Forest, which I was like, this sounds familiar. Oh, right. We've yeah. been doing ads about it for years. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Tales from the old Margrave. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a, a dark wood from your fairy tales. You know it's this the, one. It's the Black Forest, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. Little Red Riding Hood goes into it. There are talking wolves inside it. Fae, fairies. You go and you're going to get lost. Uh, and then we also have the Dark Kingdoms. Uh, so there's the Blood Kingdom of Margau of Morgau, uh, which is kind of Romania and Transylvania. This is, uh, you know, a large surf class ruled by vampires. 
this is Ravenloft. Um, you know, Midgard isn't necessarily a, like everything belongs in Midgard, but it is it is like the main setting. And so pretty much everything that you're going to find in 5e or another fantasy game, you can fit in here somewhere. And so if you want to play a dark gothic game, this is where you do it in the Dark Kingdoms. Speaking of Dark Kingdoms and uh, of aforementioned Baba Yaga, you should tell me about the war with the Baba Yaga. <laughs> uh, yeah, Morgau is in like a a cold war, I guess, a secret war with Baba Yaga. They're hoping it doesn't like just explode, uh, you know, out uh, into open warfare. But, you know, everyone's got their own ways of dealing with Baba Yaga. Uh, she so terrorized the gnomes, which is this is basically the the only place where you find a bunch of uh, gnomes in the setting, you know, sending her hags to steal their their beards and, you know, stealing their children, making bread out of them that they said, you know what? Sounds pretty good. There's a devil from the 11 hells who's saying that they can protect us from Baba Yaga's forces. And all we have to do is sell our souls. <laughs> this what a bargain. <laughs> it's such a deal. <laughs> so now if you wander into a gnomish city in uh, Nimheim, be careful because they're probably going to be very friendly at first. I believe that's Nimeheim. N- I know that you want to pronounce it Nimeheim because that's uh, less, it, it rolls off the tongue nicer for your, your petty human tongue, but you know that, <laughs> that gnomes want that to be Nimeheim. I really want it to be Gnomeheim. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, when night falls, they're probably going to chop you into little pieces as a blood yeah, sacrifice. Yeah, just uh, so, so don't trust gnomes here. Just like any good, uh, good and smart adventurer wouldn't trust gnomes anywhere else. That's right. Just like in the real world, don't trust <laughs> gnomes. When that little red-hatted, three-inch tall thing in your garden starts talking to you, just leave. <laughs> yeah, when he when he rides up on his fox, do not trust him. <laughs> this is a vixen, good sir. <laughs> David is a uh, is a is a cover ID. <laughs> he will blood sacrifice you. <laughs> All right, then there's the Ruthenian Plain, which is, you know, it's the steppes, right? It and it it is uh, very much directly to the west of the crossroads and uh, the Eastern European analogs, right? So you've got Mongols who ride around on horses, the the Kazaki. Uh, you've got a Romani analog who uh, travel around in covered wagons, the Kariv. You've got uh, whole nations of centaur horsemen, which like, you know, if I was a centaur, I would also build my nation on the on the grassy steps. <laughs> does does seem like a uh, a place to really spread your legs, you know, <laughs> stretch your legs. That, that makes more sense. <laughs> I mean... <laughs> Horses have fun too. <laughs> just, just, gonna, just gonna leave that one out there, huh? <laughs> We're right, not just doing like phrasing anymore. Do. <laughs> <laughs> Is that not a thing? Uh, also, also in the, in the Ruthenian plain, uh, you'll find Baba Yaga herself. Uh, Probably because li- of all those here. spread horses. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> just my house is on chicken feet, but that doesn't mean I don't know how to party. <laughs> You should tell me about dragons. <laughs> All right, here's where we begin to diverge a little bit. Uh, you've got the Marodi Empire, which is ruled by dragons. And the cool thing about dragons in Midgard is that 
they're not your typical like St. George and the Dragon type of big worms who are sleeping all the time. I'm Smaug and like I like to lay in a bed of gold. They like gold, but they're practical. And they understand that if you're just sitting on your hoard, it's losing value. Mm, yeah, <laughs> the inflation will kill you. Right? So they've decided to get involved in business and politics and conquest. <laughs> properly cyberpunk dragons. <laughs> so they've built basically an empire that is mostly scaled races. So you've got, you know, the dragons at the top, and then you have dragonborn who are the warriors, and then you have kobolds um, who are very specifically not necessarily the servant class here. They, they can, you know, rise pretty highly because they are, um, you know, valued advisors. They're like the uh, civil servant class, right? Yeah, and, um, you know, they're certainly better there, uh, than, you know, any of the hairier races. You know, those, I don't know, gross underlings who don't really understand how things should be. Important that these are reptilian kobolds and not dog-like kobolds of, of prior editions. <laughs> right. <laughs> Maybe every once in a while you get a dog-like kobold born and this family's terribly ashamed. <laughs> so, again, though... There's a, there's an analog, right? The ruler of the Marodi Empire is a sultan. There are other references that make it pretty obvious that this is like the Ottomans or um, it is like taking inspiration from Arabia. Then we have the seven cities, which are sort of the Italian city-states. Uh, they're, they're a war-focused society in service to the god Mavros. Uh, you know, if they aren't fighting with each other, they're fighting with somebody outside. Yeah, and I think... I think now you start to see one of the potential problems with a setting that really leans into um, real world analogs, right? Like there are definitely some benefits to it that, you know, we'll talk about a little bit later, but you can get into a situation where you're like, ah, well, you know, the Russians who are riding around here, uh, well, they, they keep a lot of slaves, you know, and, but then you're like, wait, they're not. They're not the Russians. I don't. I don't mean Russians. You know. You know what I mean. You know what I mean. Right. Yeah, like, but okay. But you said. You said Russians. <laughs> uh, then, as we mentioned at the top, we have the Wasted West. Uh, this is the sort of Spain France region that's been destroyed by alien horrors uh, after it was ruled by tyrannical wizards. There's plenty of plunder, but most of the inhabitants are dust goblins or paladins. Yeah, you know, this is the place where it's a terrible idea to go there but if you can get out alive it's certainly worth your while it's a whole industry <laughs> a whole industry of terrible madness watching eldritch horrors slowly move across the horizon <laughs> i have no idea what that is and that's why i'm still sane then you've got the grand duchy of dornig and here's another place where midgard sort of ventures further afield from your traditional fantasy. This is one of the very few places in the setting that you're going to find true elves because there's only a few thousand of them left. The beloved Imperatrix Regia Moonthorn Calfania Rain Van Dornig is in a coma and she has not named a successor. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> is that, that not name? the most elvish name you've ever heard though? That name is straight out of one of my characters. <laughs> <laughs> I love it so much. <laughs> anyway, with no successor in a coma, uh, being as she's in a coma with no successor, uh, 
the duchy is now ruled by human and half-elf families uh, squabbling amongst themselves over what to do next. Then you got your Northlands. You know what the Northlands are. They're in the north. They're cold. They're Vikings. They've got Thor. Mm-hmm. They got Loki. They got giants. And then you have your Southlands. Uh, you know what this is as well. Um, this is going to be uh, Nuria Natal, which is more or less Egypt, uh, which has stood as a bastion of civilization and magic for 5,000 years. Um, this is where humans have discovered the path to divinity. Um, and, and the Southlands have an entire source book covering you know, the continent. Uh, but this is largely Africa. Yeah, and if you're playing like a Midgard campaign, then, you know, there are trade routes and and you'll, you know, hear news of of happenings in Nuria and Natal, but probably not so much from anywhere south of that or like what might be um, called Sub-Saharan Africa. Right. Or the analogs for it. Uh, and then the Southlands book, which we, we've like leafed through, but we haven't like fully read, covers just sort of like Southlands as an entire continent. And then the uh, Asia, China, Japan analog is, depending on uh, who you ask, is the utter east or the brilliant east. And then there's the shadow realm. So this is a flat world, like a coin, right? So there's Midgard on the top, the uh, I think the brilliant realm on the, the bottom, the bright realm where the elves are originally from. And then in between is the shadow realm, which is... In D&D parlance, like a combination of the Shadowfell and the Feywild, like they're, they're a dark fey, and it's like a mirror, it's a dark mirror of the world, like the Ethereal or the, or the Shadowfell, so like you'll find some of the same places, but it's like just kind of worse and it's creepier. Yeah, but unlike the Shadowfell and the Feywild of traditional D&D, this is the home of the noble bear folk. <laughs> I don't know why you would have bear folk who aren't normal, who aren't noble, and here they are. I know they just it look. We can't cover the noble bear folk in Fat Bear Week, and <laughs> not mention like their resplendent curves. Uh, you know, uh, I just want to get some kobolds and some noble bear folk together, and then they can all learn to love each other, right? No. Wait, hair isn't no. so bad. No, those kobolds can learn to feed the noble bear folk with their <laughs> with their whole body because uh, bears over kobolds. You heard it here first. Can I interest you in some of the horse lords, my friend? (laughs) (laughs) I mean, for dinner, maybe, but not for a snack. (laughs) All right. Speaking of bear folk, let's talk about some of the races in Midgard. You've got your normal fantasy races, your traditional D&D ones, but some of them also exist in slightly different um, echelons, I guess. They've got your dragonborn, but they're the soldiers of the Marathi Empire. And dragons and dragonborn are actually elemental based here rather than necessarily color. So you got, you know, fire, earth, air, and water. And uh, the dragonborn abilities uh, are also uh, based along those lines as opposed uh, to like the traditional metallic and chromatic. Then the dwarves uh, are gunsmiths, uh, not unlike how they fit into like more of a like a blizzard kind of Warcraft mm. type dwarf model. Um, but that that introduces sort of more of that steampunk aesthetic that we talked about. Uh, elves are basically endangered. There's maybe a thousand of them left. They're basically all in one country. Um, if you wanted elf-ish type aesthetic, you're probably going to be a half elf, um, or you're going to be an oddity. There are the Gearforged, which, uh, as we've mentioned, are sort of a, a second lease on life um, for uh, for humanoid souls. Uh, kobolds, who uh, 
do more and can aspire to more than in your traditional fantasy settings where they're just sort of like stuck running around in the alleys uh, and aren't particularly bright. Minotaurs here, much like Dragonlance, are seafarers. I thought that was interesting. Um, hard to get lost on the sea, I guess. I like that. Yeah, no, I think that makes a lot of sense. They have the, uh, you know, the natural ability of uh, astronomy. You know, the true maze is one without walls. I'm just going to say. <laughs> okay. <laughs> the true maze is one's mind, Ishan. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't get lost in my introspective paths. It's a hedge maze. <laughs> Uh, then we have the Raven Folk, who uh, are tied to Wotan and uh, associated with swordsmanship. Of course, they have a reputation for thievery, being as they are <laughs> birds. Look, look, they're just grabbing shiny things and putting them in their nest. I don't understand. They don't. They don't have a concept of. Of no, I'm thinking of Kender. Sorry, I'm thinking of Kender. <laughs> <laughs> you got Shadowfay. Uh, remember, elves are very rare, so Drow are also very rare. So they sort of take the place of Drow as the evil Fey elf race. There are then the Alcide, who are the elf centaurs with deer bodies. I like that. Where you know people are like, oh, mermaid or centaur or whatever, right? Like the uh, a half race, like half. One, one on top, one on bottom, and you sort of like mix and match them out. I like the idea where you're like, all right, I'm going to swap out the human for an elf. But you know, I think an elf would also swap out the horse for a deer and they got antlers. You know, that I, I think that that's a sort of a, a nice permutation. You have regular centaurs. Then there are the Darakul, um, who are often soldiers in the Dark Kingdoms. They're basically super ghouls, you know, like your regular monster ghouls, but they're uh, a lot tougher and stronger. Then we have the Dampir. These are half vampires, um, largely going to be found in uh, the Dark Kingdoms. And the Jinborn, which are kind of like the the settings version of Genasi, um, except they're like, half genies but they're uh, quite a bit more powerful than you know regular uh genasi and then you know you've also got you know plenty of the other races that don't differ markedly but have their own histories like uh, tieflings for example um are all probably according to you know legend descended from you know one particular uh, devil who's basically sort of like staked a claim on top of a ley line so anything that you want to play, you can definitely fit in and there's a place for it. So let's talk about some of the themes of a Midgard campaign. Well, first off, the gods are meddlers. They like to scheme and plot. You never necessarily know who you're dealing with due to the masks. It could be that, you know, you're dealing with this, what you consider a cult and turns out they happen to worship the same god as you and now we're on the same side. Yeah, every god is Loki. <laughs> But one thing I do like about this is, you know, we've our, one of our complaints about Forgotten Realms is like, oh, the gods are meddlers and they're always just showing up every 10 years and just like breaking everything. The concept of the masks keeps them from openly acting in mortal affairs. Like they, they will definitely like show up to a person and, you know, give them a quest or um, sometimes like a god will sire a child and that person is the the hereditary ruler of a nation and like they show up every three years for a big feast you know so so gods are much closer than in something like eberron um but they're not stomping all over the world even though they are leaving an impression i uh i really like how 
like it's set up so that the gods are playing among us and it's like mm, i don't know about that wotan acting kind of sus might be horus in disguise <laughs> <laughs> i also like that you know we didn't really get into this in, in sort of like describing the different regions but each region has maybe like up to a half dozen gods who are revered in that particular area that, you know, might or probably belong to one pantheon, but you could have, you know, another god from a, a different pantheon or, you know, under a different name that's recognized in this particular area. And that also like feeds into the particular character of a region and also feels a lot more like medieval and Renaissance Europe to me where, you know, like it's up to you if you want to, call this the temple of uh, Jupiter or the temple of uh, Zeus, right? Like yeah. who really cares? Right. They're both the same thing. And, and that, but the name that you use and the trappings that you use sort of helps identify where you're from culturally. So another theme of Midgard is that magic abounds. Uh, sometimes it is tangible uh, in the form of like ley lines. Other times it's the strange people or races that you run across. Sometimes it's, um, improbable innovation like the you know gear forged and, and some of that steampunk aesthetic um i think like a lot of times i look at this uh and, and kind of see the parallels to eberron um but this is like kind of an important distinction is that like magic is just permeating the world it's not industrialized the way that uh eberron treats it right yeah i think that's a really important distinction uh, also nothing is static uh, Midgard is designed as a living campaign world and it gets occasional updates. Uh, the 2018 lore, uh, if you buy the most recent 5e or sorry, the most uh, recent uh, version of the Midgard campaign setting is updated from the uh, previous versions of the campaign setting. Borders shift, power changes hands. You don't necessarily know, um, or it's not always the same person who's always going to be the governor of a particular province. I, uh, I like this a lot. I miss the, uh, the old days of like the Greyhawk living campaign settings and things like that. So, um, I guess I don't miss the old days of the dark sun campaign setting, <laughs> which they ended it <laughs> because it was solved. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, our, our DMPCs solved this on our own little adventure. So <laughs> exactly. Read the novel. Don't play the game. <laughs> um, is this this kinda... is obvious. Okay. This is obviously the opposite of Eberron, which, you know, has kind of steadfastly not progressed in order to let you uh, put your own spin on it. But I think this is better handled than something like Forgotten Realms, which mm -hmm. just, uh, you know, advances timeline hundreds of years and blows up the campaign and, you know, does all kinds of uh, wonky stuff that is poorly thought through. Right. It's like a a few rotations around the sun changes, not the time of troubles and mistress gonna stomp all over everything yeah it's not a new age every time they release a new edition right? right it's like oh well this war was in progress how about an update on how that's going and then one other theme that i really like in a midgard game is the the concept that the book calls time flies you have the option of playing a long-term game where uh then every session automatically advances the timeline by a few weeks. Um, and, and this means that, you know, it sort of solves the problem of like, how were we first level in August and by December, you know, judging by the number of long rests that we took, we're, you know, 25th level, 
you know? uh, monumental assess, uh, ascendance of power <laughs> punctuated equilibrium <laughs> how else do you become a god <laughs> uh, but you can also expand this even further and I, I like this idea and i mean jim from our gaming group will probably love this idea for birthright you can basically play generational campaigns where each session automatically advances the timeline maybe at least at least two months so you play six sessions you've already got a year in game times so and now, now you're thinking okay this is not just about what my character has done it's about what are we doing for the nation or the city and how does that change and it actually is important if you install you know, a, a new person in power because they will have the chance to rule and you'll be able to see what happens due to that. And then, you know, eventually you have like children and families and, and you die of old age and then you see what happens to like those other adventures that you've created. Yeah, you see you see the changes and the impact that you have in like real world, uh, you know, game group time, not just in like theoretical future time right? right like not just narrative time but like you know uh this week we can make this you know imprint the world with our decision and then in three weeks we'll see that come to light right like we'll know the outcome of that decision even if it would take years in the campaign to permeate uh we'll actually get to experience that as a group instead of just kind of theorizing about what what what's going to happen in the epilogue yeah, it's kind of like Birthright Light, where you know you don't have domain actions and domain turns. You just advance the timeline, and then you see what naturally flows from that. And you know th there are rules for like not even rules. So there's suggestions that are like if you're in the middle of a dungeon, like don't advance the timeline, finish the dungeon, and then advance however much time you've been saving up. Right. All right. So how do you play uh, Midgard? Because this is not tied specifically to one rule set. Yeah, I mean, pick your system first. You know, like one of the nice things about Midgard is you can pick up the world book and read through it and like really enjoy the the setting and you're not stuck playing a particular system. Play your favorite system, play Fate, whatever you want to do and just use the lore. And if you do want specific rules, there are rules for most major fantasy systems. Then I think you want to pick a place. Uh, the world is large. It's complicated. There's a lot in there. The book suggests that stories should probably center on one area or several kinds of people, but not just a mishmash of, you know, I'm from the, our party comes together from all four corners of the uh, of the map. Yeah, and I I like that idea. I mean, I like things like Eberron and even things like Forgotten Realms or Planescape where, where it's like you could come from anywhere and it's this motley crew. And like that's a that's a cool idea. But in Midgard specifically, I think some of the stories that work really well are ones that are very grounded in a location and in characters who have a tie to a particular people or a culture or whatever, even if like, you know, the campaign is, hey, we're going to save the world, you know? Right. Uh, but then you can have characters who travel to a different place and they sort of experience it as a new and like, ugh, this is a word that we hate, right? But when the, it's happening to the characters, it's it's more okay, like an exotic location because it is exotic to them no matter where they happen to come from so then the other thing to keep in mind is that small things matter in midgard and they become big things over time uh so you know a simple standoff between two nations um uh, perhaps over uh some clandestine activity that your foolish party members have uh undertaken can easily explode into an all-out war that sucks in multiple nations like you know uh europe in pre-world war one <laughs> 
Yeah, the whole place is sitting on a, a powder keg from like, you know, 1880 to 1917. <laughs> I mean, Europe was a powder keg from roughly 1600 to, uh, <laughs> to uh, yesterday. Yeah, right. <laughs> and then if you're going to play in Midgard, I say this cautiously, lean on the analogs. You know, if if you are um, playing in... If you're playing in the Marodi Empire and your uh, party goes to a city and you don't happen to know everything about the city or it's not listed in your book or you don't have it at hand, you can probably figure out what people here are like or what they do or what they eat because you just use the real world analog. What do people in like this part of the world around this time, what would they be eating or doing or thinking or feeling? Which is like a really easy way to, to get people into the the setting because it's it's something that people could sort of understand of course <laughs> you do want to be very careful that you are not leaning into stereotypes of people that you know maybe you you feel like you understand better than you actually do mm-hmm. yeah this is where uh you know research is important and not just impression right uh like, if you want to know what a city might be like, research the city. Don't go look up a film that was vaguely inspired by some, you know, outsider's view of the city. Right. Oh, what do they serve here? Uh, it's uh, it's probably borscht. It's borscht, right? <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, that's just true. What about the the next cafe? Oh, it's, it's also borscht. It's all they have. <laughs> if you go across that forest, it's sauerkraut. <laughs> You're not getting across that forest. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, yeah, someone's going to eat those kids. Um, so someone's got to eat those kids. Come on. <laughs> so what uh, what systems would you consider using for uh, for Midgard? I think these days the easiest is going to be 5e. Um, there are plenty of splat books for it. And, you know, the, the lore was updated in 2018 pretty much specifically so that it would be easier to play with 5th edition D&D. If you absolutely despise D&D, that's also fine because there's a lot of information to help you play it in Pathfinder, which is, you know, one of the original systems that uh, Midgard was released for. Yeah, then, of course, you throw in 13th Age because it's not a huge uplift from either of those systems. Um, if you, Min- if Minotaurs. Inter- Minotaur sailors in 13th Age. <laughs> uh, if you are interested in the generational aspect of it, I think uh, Pendragon is an, is an interesting way to approach it since that's a game that's built around sort of years at a time yeah and there are definitely uh locations where you can also lean into the sort of like night nightly court aspects of pendragon yeah okay so a couple caveats we've mentioned this a couple times already but i don't think i can mention it too many times um this is a campaign setting that is based on analogs of real world nations so if you are using shorthands for those nations, it can very easily touch on or, or fall right into real-world racism. And even if you're sort of using shorthand for like, all right, so, you know, um, in the Grand Duchy, they do this, and, you know, in, in Zobek, they have these particular feelings, and the doors are keeping thralls and all of that, right? If it's very obvious that that, anal- that is the analog for a particular type of person, then all the terrible things happening in there, uh, it's hard. 
it's hard to say and it's hard to see how those are not just negative stereotypes of a real people. I think it's also uh, worth mentioning again the pervasiveness of slavery throughout the setting um, and the generally dark tone. Um, that's obviously the kind of thing that you want to make sure that you have buy-in for um, and and unfortunately is probably difficult to write out of the setting because um, it is pretty much the basis of a lot of the uh, <laughs> a lot of the economic factors. Yeah, so I mean, this is definitely a conversation that you're having in in session zero, right? Or even during the the pitch for your party. Like, I would be less likely to want to play in a game set in the Iron Crags where we're all playing dwarves because, like, now I have to play a slaver. You yeah, know? and like, I don't want to. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that that might be um, something to discuss. Is like, can we, you know, default our point of view on slavery is negative. <laughs> um, we are not ourselves going to participate in slavery. Right, and maybe it exists in the world, but you know, we will agree on what happens if we encounter slavers. All right. So, the thing that we ask uh, every time we do one of these campaign settings episodes shane would you play a game set in midgard i am interested in playing a game in midgard in that pendragon light uh, i am less interested in playing a game in like a typical 5e sense um just because i am kind of burnt out on 5e games right now um how about you i would definitely play a midgard game and i think with caveats like uh, there are plenty of other generic fantasy settings that I already have a lot of investment in. And so switching over, you know, to Midgard to play in like Zobek doesn't feel any different to me than playing in Sharn. And like, I already have all the trappings of Sharn. But I'm definitely interested in like the the sort of small pockets of Midgard where you get a setting or you get a story that you're you're not really easily able to tell in a lot of other games right give me a nuri natal game that really focuses on that and like the you know the humans who have risen to divinity and now are like the egyptian gods and you know it's a giant ley line instead of the nile that is like feeding the the entire culture and i'm i'm interested in that give me a, a margrave game and we're playing like a black forest fairy tale game super mm -hmm. into that yeah 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 agreed all right do you hear that Ishan? Uh, yep, that is the stomping sound of uh, giant chicken feet coming our way. Well, then it's time to move on to the character creation forge and get out of the way of this Baba Yaga. Why is there also a horse neighing? I don't understand. <laughs> Before we do that, let's talk about how our listeners can get in contact with us. We do love hearing from you. You can tweet at Shane at Mundangerous. That's M-U-N Dangerous. And you can tweet at Ishan at Evil Sans Carne. That's Malice minus Meat. And you can tweet at the show at TPTCast. You can also email us at TotalPartyThrill at gmail.com. And you can find us on the web at www.TotalPartyThrill.com. We're also on Facebook and Instagram at TotalPartyThrill. And join the conversation on Discord. There's a link in the show notes. All right, so this week in the Character Creation Forge, it is Overwatchtober. It is finally Overwatchtober. We, we made it 2020. Woo! Uh, my favorite month. Because I build no characters in the forge. Uh huh. So lucky it's a it's a five Thursday October. <laughs> Sucker. Uh, all right. What the heck is Torbjorn? So Torbjorn is a Swedish dwarf engineer who builds weapons for Overwatch. 
Uh, he uses a rivet gun. He has a hammer. He builds turrets that shoot his enemies on his behalf. He occasionally armors himself up significantly. Uh, and sometimes he overrides his molten core. Uh, so, I mean, this is an Iron Crag dwarf, right? It, it, yeah, it really is. All right. So what's the build? Uh, the build is Artillerist Artificer 12, Forge Cleric 8. So we're going to start uh, Artillery Artificer uh, three levels. We'll get Firearm Proficiency, which of course is important because firearms. Uh, we'll get Magical Tinkering that lets us uh, play with you know objects. Uh, we'll get Spell Casting up to third level Artificer Spells. You'll get uh, infusions, a lot of good options there. I usually prefer just the, the plus one bonuses at low levels. Uh, artillery spells are great, including shield. And then you get the Eldritch Cannon, which as a bonus action, you've got a lot of different options, a flamethrower, a force ballista, or a, a bunch of temp HP. Yeah, I think uh, force ballista is probably the most thematic one, but uh, you can certainly justify a flamethrower anytime you want. Uh, and then also at level three, you get right tool for the job, which lets you conjure uh, artisan tools after an hour. That's right. The uh, justification for a flamethrower is, in fact, my flamethrower. <laughs> you want you want a reason? Sure. Here, just look look down here. <laughs> uh, right. Then we'll take eight levels of forge cleric, uh, which will get a spell casting up to uh, fourth level cleric spells. We will get heavy armor proficiency, which is good because. Uh, Torbjorn's a little guy, but he's pretty hard to take down. Uh, and then what we really love here is Blessing of the Forge lets you turn a non-magical item into a plus one item. So whatever you aren't using your infusion for, or perhaps you want to use a utility infusion, you can get an extra plus one. Your channel divinity is Artisan's Blessing. Uh, in one hour, you can forge a non-magical metal item worth up to 100 gold pieces. At level six, you get resistance to fire and plus one to AC and heavy armor, which of course you are wearing. And then Torbjorn can destroy undead up to CR1. I don't know if that's a game thing, but uh, it's useful in D&D. Yeah, it's helpful in D&D. I guess you just kind of uh, burn them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but at level 8, you'll get Divine Strike, which lets you add plus D8 on your weapon attacks. Uh, and then finish Artificer 212. You get the Arcane Firearm, which means spells uh, can be cast through your staff rod or which means that artificer spells that you cast uh, through your firearm deal an extra 1d8 damage. Uh, then at level 7, you'll get Flash of Genius, which as a reaction lets you add your intelligence modifier to a saving throw uh, or a skill check up to intelligence modifier times per day. Probably the best ability in the game. And then at level 9, you'll get Explosive Cannon, which adds d8 to the damage of your, um, of your turret. Uh, of your Eldritch Cannon, but uh, also lets you detonate it as an action. Um, it doesn't really do much damage. It's it's pretty inefficient, but I suppose there's a, a way in which you have a lot of enemies clustered around a 20-foot radius of your uh, of your turret and really need to do 3d8 force damage. I mean, you can make them tiny, so I think you could just toss them. Yeah, yeah right? Now you have grenades. It's an expensive action economy. <laughs> <laughs> You'll get Magic Item Adept, with, which will allow you to attune to up to four items, and then Spell Storing Item lets you put a level one or two spell inside an item, and then anybody can cast from it two times your Intelligence modifier times per day. Uh, and then your Capstone at level 12 is an ability score increase. <laughs> Take a feat. <laughs> have some fun. I don't know. You're level 20. Do do whatever you want. Take, uh, take a level of Rogue. <laughs> <laughs> 
So before we wrap up, we want to take a moment and thank all of our Patreon supporters. Your support is what makes it possible for us to keep doing this show every single week. So if you'd like to learn more, you can check out all our rewards at patreon.com slash totalpartythrill. And you can also leave us a five-star review on iTunes. If you do, we will read it on the show. That helps other people find us and moves us up the charts, which helps us grow. Uh, So what do we have planned for next week's episode? We are talking about necromancy. And in the character creation forge? We're building Ash. Well, that's it for episode 270 of Total Party Thrill. I hope we lived up to our name, but either way, I'm Shane. And I'm Ishan. Thanks for listening. Gather round, travelers, to hear our tale. Venture Maidens is an actual play 5th edition podcast made by four longtime friends and lifetime gamers. We take our role playing as seriously as we keep our bulges tasteful. So if you're looking for an epic high fantasy tale spun by a killer cast, give us a shot. We publish new episodes every other week and live stream our game recordings on Twitch. Now get on out there and download Venture Maidens wherever podcasts are free. Hope to see you in the community, and don't forget to venture away.